So, continuing in our lesson on 20 basic beliefs every Christian should know, um, we're going to be talking about sort of two different topics today. It'll be split. Um, the first will be what is sin, and the second, who is Christ? So, first, an in introduction what is sin? Sin disrupts everything. We don't live, live the lives we were originally designed to live. We don't live in the world we were originally designed to live in. Sin mars the image of God in us. We no longer reflect the perfection God created us to reflect. And I always appreciated the way the 1689 Confession reads on this. Um, in chapter 6, in paragraph 1, it says... Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Yet he did not long abide in this honor. God made man upright as his image bearers. There is a unique honor bestowed upon man. We were created as the crown of God's creation. But now, because of sin, that image, though not shattered completely, is severely fractured. Again, um, uh, in our introduction, it states that not only is man uh, fallen, but the world is suffering from the effects of sin. Romans 8 even speaks of creation groaning and longing for the revelation of the sons of God. And in Genesis, you see God cursing the ground because of Adam's sin. Cursed is the ground because of you, God says, um, in, in speaking to Adam. Every earthquake, every tornado, every tsunami is the earth suffering from the effects of sin and groaning for redemption and restoration. So neither man nor this world reflects the original state in which they were created. Sin has disrupted everything. Everything is affected by sin. Um, again, what is sin? And sort of we can break this into categories. Sin is the failure to glorify God in all circumstances. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, sin is also failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So Exodus 20, uh, 1 to 17, we see laid out for us uh, the Ten Commandments, and we know that all of us have broken those commandments. Um, and if we say we haven't broken them, then we lied and we've broken that commandment. All of us have broken the Ten Commandments, right? It's, it's clearly seen. The Old Testament, this is interesting. The Old Testament uses six different nouns and three verbs to describe sin. It uses the word evil or bad, which carries the implication of something that is contrary to God's nature. It uses the word sin or offense, which carries the implication of that which is deserving of punishment. It uses the word wicked. This carries the implication of something that is morally wrong. It uses the word iniquity, which carries the implication of being perverse, crooked, or twisted. It uses the word transgression, which carries the implication of flat-out rebellion. 
and it uses the word guilty, which carries the implication of offense or trespass. Right? So sin is found in the very nature of men. Ephesians 2, 3, we were born in, into sin and we all suffer and we follow the passions of our flesh. We are by nature children of wrath, by nature children of wrath. So transitioning here, where did sin come from? Since sin is in complete contradiction to God, he cannot sin. We should never blame God for sin or think that he bears the responsibility for sin. His ways are perfect, they are just, they are righteous, and it is impossible for him to even desire to do wrong. Right? So Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, speaking of God, says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is holy in his character, and he is just, and he is without blemish in any way, shape, or form. Continuing on this uh, subject on where sin came from. So although we see that God is just, he's holy, and he's righteous, um, at the same time, Scripture bears witness that God ordained that sin come into the world. Um, in Ephesians 1.11, God is sovereign over all things, and he's working all things for the purpose of his goodwill and his counsel, right? So God is he's over all things. He's ruling and reigning over all things. God is infinite. Man is finite. I mean, this is... it's undoubtedly something that we're going to grapple with because it's a mystery here and it is complex and it's beyond what we're able to grasp. But you have to sit back and I think recognize your position before God. He is he's God um, and he is infinite and his ways are inscrutable and he's just and we are uh, creatures and we are finite in our understanding. Right. So um, God can be good, holy and just. Um, and at the same time, ordain that sin come into the world and yet maintain his holy character and his justice as, as God. Okay? How are we doing? We're good? Oh, you're, you're going to? Okay. Thank you. Do it for me. I appreciate that. Okay. So, continuing. Where sin came from. So, sin existed in Satan and his demons first. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. We see in Genesis 2.16 and Genesis 3.6. In both of those chapters, we see um, God giving a clear uh, mandate and command to Adam, which he was to pass to Eve. You see Eve in this uh, conversation with Satan and then conversing with Adam. So Eve being deceived by Satan and Eve speaking with Adam and Adam heeding the voice of the woman and eating of the fruit of the, the, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And so God gave them uh, clear, comprehensive commands. So they were understood. Adam and Eve chose for themselves what was right and what was wrong. They understood what was said. And they said, no, we want to decide ourselves. And so they rebel against God in that way. As a result, Adam's nature became sinful and caused us to inherit a sinful 
nature. You can cite some of the verses here, um, Romans 17, 9. You, you can't even know the depth of the wickedness of your own heart. Who can know his heart? Romans 7, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17, 9. <clears throat> so we are even, we're not even fully able to comprehend our own, our own wickedness and, and our hearts. The heart is Wicked, it's, it's defiled. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And I want to mention here, to hopefully maybe make this a little more clear, that we are in Adam's posterity. Um, in other words, Adam stands as our representative. We've all seen a baseball game or a football game or a basketball game. Um, so you have five men on the court. So let me... I'm, Think of Jordan, I don't know, maybe 98, he won the championship. I don't know, I don't remember. So Jordan, Rodman, and whoever else, you get these five players on this team. Even if you rode the bench the whole year and you never got in the game, when those men played, although you were never on the court, and they won that championship, they got a ring, you got a ring, right? So those men represented the whole of the team. In the Olympics, when one athlete is put forward by a nation, or a country, and that athlete, and he wins, he represents the whole country, right? And you feel a sense of pride and joy. Yes, that's my country, right? In that same way, Adam stands as our representative before God. We are in his posterity, okay? So because of this, by nature, we are, we are unable to do anything that pleases God. Every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our goals, our motives are all affected by sin. To put it another way, if sin were the color blue, for my artists in the room or graphic designers like myself, if sin were the color blue, everything you do is a hue of blue, all right? So you may have, it may be a lighter blue or it may be a darker blue, but all our actions, intentions, and motives would all have some hue of blue, okay? So Adam's guilt is our guilt because of this. It's imputed sin. We all stand in Adam now as our representative. We're in his posterity, and we have uh, received his, his guilt, his condemnation, um, and he is our representative before God. So how sin affects us? Before I transition to this, any thoughts, any, any questions on that, what I've shared so far? Lloyd. Um, I was just going to say that in, in our uh, confession, the 1689, right. in chapter 6, it gives a very good, um, if you have the, I think you guys handed out the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those have a really good, explain, easy explanation of, yeah. um, of the same thing to help get it in our, um, I guess, minds. Yeah, yeah, man, it really does. And that's why I pulled from the confession. I like the language of the confession. It's very clear <clears throat> in how it explains this. Okay, so how does sin affect us? How we get with one another and do life together? So all stand guilty before God. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good 
and never since. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear than that. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is all of us. That's universal. Uh, the penalty of sin is death. Uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, death. Right? So if you've done this, then the wages are this. Uh, for those in Christ, we no longer stand uh, condemned because he stood condemned. Death has been defeated. Right? So now we're, we're in Christ. We're in Christ's posterity, the, the elect, and now Christ is, stands forth as our representative, and we no longer stand condemned because Christ stood condemned on the cross, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God, which we'll talk about in a sec here. <clears throat> when we sin as forgiven Christians, our legal standing is not affected, but our, our relationship with God is. Let's, uh, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 12 here. <clears throat> I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 to 11. This is one of the most um, encouraging passages for me. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 to 11. Thinking along the lines of our legal standing is not affected, but our fellowship with God can be affected by sin. Starting at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines the Christian for their good. He cares for your holiness. So let us not say when when we're being disciplined or chastised by God that, Lord, you must, you must hate me, or you must be holding me at bay. Why am I being afflicted, afflicted like this? If you are a child of God, it's, his, it's your holiness God has in mind. It's love for you that he disciplines you. So it's a blessed thing to be disciplined by God. And we should <laughs> rejoice that the Lord is loving and shows his care for us in that way. Yeah, Lewis. I love what it says after, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your knees yeah. and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint for other be healed. So it's great to see, like, God's discipline in us and training us uh, because we're meant to be righteous and holy, right. but then also it gives us the responsibility because you're like, okay, well, if you just read that, and you're like, all right, well, I'll just wait for the Lord to discipline and see what happens. <laughs> right. And it also says, therefore, lift your soul, do what you're meant to do. Amen. Mm. Amen. Good stu
All right, so continuing here, sin can also affect our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So some of the ways that sin, sin affects our relationship, um, the sin of unforgiveness can affect our relationship with one another. Um, holding some sin against a brother or sister as if their sin against you is greater than your sin against God. That can definitely affect how we live with one another and how we come alongside one another. The sin of pride. So the foot saying to the hand, we don't need you. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, in that passage. Um, so have, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to and looking at another and saying, well, you're not me or you can't do what I can do or you don't have this gift or even coveting another brother's gifts in a sinful way. All those things affect our relationship. The sin of laziness in a sluggardly way um, in which we give ourselves to the local church. We see opportunities to serve one another or to serve the local church or to serve the, the, the Lord alongside one another. And just laziness keeps us from taking advantage of those opportunities. Um, so just sin affects, I mean, there are countless ways in which sin affects our relationship with our brothers and sisters. That's just a few. <clears throat> All right, so before we transition to Christ, any thoughts? All right, so transitioning, who is Christ? So Jesus as fully man. Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. His ordinary birth affirms his humanity. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Right? So he was conceived in a miraculous way by the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ, uh, as fully man, continuing, uh, he had a human body, and therefore, he grew, he increased in wisdom, he became weary, he was hungry, he was thirsty. Uh, Luke 2.40 says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. All right, so Jesus, in the back with the um, children's Sunday school class, we're talking about the humanity of Christ and how on the outside, he looks like any other man. Um, and Isaiah says of his appearance, it wasn't, he didn't have an appearance where he was this, uh, as we would say, this sort of this prince charming. Um, the, uh, Isaiah says he wasn't, he was just a homely man. He wasn't much to look at. He was just like any other man on the outside. But on the inside, in him dwelled the fullness of God which is wonderful to think about. Um, and what we're gonna talk about that in detail in, in a sec here. But he was fully man, he was fully man. He also rose from the dead physically. We see that in Luke 24, 39. Um, he felt the full range of emotions. He marveled, he wept, he prayed with loud cries and tears. He was sorrowful and he was troubled. John 12, 27 says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
All right, so Jesus experienced the full range of emotion. If you just read the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you can see and feel the anguish of our Lord, right? So if we, we can't deny his humanity and only say, well, he was divine, right? He was fully God and he was fully man, and he had to be both fully God and fully man. All right, so he was like us in every respect but one. He was without sin. Second Corinthians 5.21, another one of my favorite verses. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin. Jesus was without sin. He was, perfectly, he was our perfectly obedient representative in his active obedience and in his passive obedience. The uh, 689 Baptist Confession of Faith, again in chapter 8, on Christ the Mediator says in paragraph 5, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, hath fully satisfied the justice of God procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those who the Father hath given unto him. So Jesus was able to procure or obtain reconciliation, as is stated in the confession, by the very fact that he was fully God and fully man. Why? Because bulls and goats were not enough. Only man can pay for man's sin, and only God can take the full weight of the wrath of God and actually satisfy its demands. In Jesus' active obedience, he performs the righteous acts that we did not perform, and in Jesus' passive obedience, he refrains from performing the wicked acts we did perform. Does that make sense? Right, so in his active and passive obedience, he is our mediator and stands rightly in the place between men and God. Any thoughts on that? Any other scriptures come to mind when you think about Jesus as the mediator between God and man? <clears throat> Any thoughts on that? I was just going to say, uh, when it comes to that, like, when it comes to the humanity and, and the deity, it's so vital that we try not to add human philosophy to explain it, hmm. but just rest right. on the scriptures. Right. Um, the scriptures are enough, because at times you can, if you're in a, a discussion with an unbeliever or, or, or a critic of the faith, it's, it's easy to try to drift off because they want to, they try to force you to explain it apart from scriptures. And, you can't. Right. Um, it's just best just to rest where scriptures proclaim. Amen. Same thing with the, the sin, how is evil in the world and God not responsible. Right. Well, we see it revealed in our scriptures. Like David himself, although at one point there was a heavenly realm going on and the Lord said, send out something to incite David right. to right. sin. Right. At the same time, we see David understands where this all came from. It came from him. So it's just, when it comes to the mystery, so to say, many sort of doctrine, just rest where scripture right. puts us. Right. We have to maintain that uh, creator-creature distinction. Yeah. I mean, even 
when the Christian dies and is in eternity, uh, he is going on and on forever and eternity, learning in, in the mysteries of God. Um, he, he, God never ceases to pour out wonderful mysteries that we spend eternity trying to comprehend with joy, you know? So that's, that's a good point. All right. So continuing on the humanity of Christ and him being fully human, his humanity as well as his deity allows him to serve as the one mediator between God and man. First Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the oneness of this claim is crucial. There is no other way for sinful men to be made right with a holy God. The universal reality of the sinfulness of men disqualifies any other from being in this position. And the unique holiness of Christ qualifies him alone to be in this position as mediator. Right? So Mohammed does not meet the prerequisite. The Pope does not meet the prerequisite. Mother Teresa does not meet the prerequisite. Mary Magdalene does not meet the prerequisite. Only Jesus is uniquely fit to sit in the office as priest between Yahweh and men, between the holy king and his rebellious subjects, between the righteous creator and his fallen creatures. Jesus alone stands anointed for this office. He is uniquely different, uniquely set apart. All right? <clears throat> Jesus is also fully God. So we've looked at him being fully man, but he's also fully God. As seen earlier, Jesus' conception was a miraculous, supernatural work of God. <clears throat> His divine and human nature, his, his divine and human nature were united in a way they will never be united in any other person. So the virgin birth, and Lord, you mentioned something along these lines, uh, trying to strip the miraculous of these things or, or dumb it down to simply modern thinking. Uh, the virgin birth of Jesus was a miraculous thing and was the fulfillment of prophecy, and it is essential to the nature of Christ. Liberal theology and others like it want to strip the miraculous, like the virgin birth, from the Bible and replace it with human reason, with uh, secular science, and with modern thinking. But let's say you do attempt to remove the miraculous and simply consider Jesus from a merely scientific perspective. Um, consider this. So I came across a, um, a website that was citing um, a book called What Are the Odds? So um, What Are the Odds is a book that gives you uh, the odds of random things happening, from lightning strikes to how, how often people visit a certain restaurant to Jesus. And I found what it said about Jesus uh, interesting. <laughs> All right, this is what it says, quoting from this site here. If you still happen to be unconvinced that the baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was anything more than just an ordinary human baby, 
Let me challenge you with a few of the odds of that in, in that regard. To begin with, did you know that the Old Testament prophet Micah, writing circa 700 BC, out of the hundreds and hundreds of cities and the scores and scores of nations in existence all over the world, even in those days, designated Bethlehem of Judea as the birthplace of the Messiah? You see that in Micah 5.2. And that about the same time Isaiah, in Isaiah 7.14, said that Christ was born of a virgin? Or that a prophecy made in, 2000, oh, in, I'm sorry, in, 10, in 1012 BC specified that the Messiah's hands and feet would eventually be pierced, a clear reference to the death by crucifixion, 800 years before, Romans, before the Romans ever even instituted crucifixion as a form of capital punishment? Or Malachi 3.1, penned in about 425 BC, specified that the Messiah would be uh, contemporary with the temple in Jerusalem, a temple that was destroyed in 70 AD and was never and has never been rebuilt. Well, if all this impresses you even a little bit, you ought to compare Zechariah 11, 11 to 13, written about 500 years before Christ, to Matthew 27, 3 to 10, written some 25 to 30 years after Christ. Only coincidence? A number of years ago, Peter W. Stoner and Robert C. Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. The book was based on the science and probability and vouched for the American scientific affiliation. It set out the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling even only eight of the 60 major prophecies with about 270 ramifications fulfilled in the life of Christ. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth could fulfill even eight such prof prophecies was only one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's one in one with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what the word is for a number that much. It is a lot. <laughs> Stoner claims that 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 many silver dollars would be enough to cover the face of the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Wow. He says, now I've been to Texas. I've driven for days to get across Texas. Texas is a very big state. My sister and my mother both live in Texas. It is a big state. Um, who in his right mind would suppose that a blindfolded man heading out of Dallas by foot in any direction would be able on his very first attempt to pick up one specifically marked silver dollar out of one with 17 zeros behind it. It is highly, highly, if I could say highly, 17 times improbable. <laughs> Those are the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight Prophecies. There are over 400 prophecies that speak of Jesus that he fulfilled either directly or indirectly. That is amazing. He is uniquely miraculous. If we turn Jesus into simply a good example or even a great man while denying his divinity and the miraculous birth, we are left with no salvation at all. If Jesus is not uniquely fit to be in this place as our mediator, there is no other fit for that priesthood, that, that office. As we saw early in our discussion about the Trinity, the Bible clearly states that Jesus is fully God. 
Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This word fullness has in mind the filling up of, uh, a full measure, the entire content. In Jesus is the fullness, the entire content of God. Again, um, I'm quoting from Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's look at also um, Revelation 1.8 with... um, Revelation 22, 12 to 13. I'm going to go to 1 8 first. This is really good and helpful. <clears throat> Any thoughts so far before we dive into Revelation? It, just, it, it really encourages my heart to just see Jesus. I just think to myself, man, I'm on the right team by God's grace. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so, so encouraging. And the Lord gives so much evidence for this that it's, it really is undeniable. All right, so Revelation 1, 8, and Revelation 22, 12, and 13. All right, so Revelation 1, 8. Um, all right. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1.8. Now, flip over to Revelation 22, 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. That is a reality. That is a certainty. Everyone will be repaid for what he has done. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's interesting here. Revelation 22 is clearly speaking of Jesus. Right. And interesting as well, whatever we want to say that Jesus is not, um, many want to, they want to advocate that Jesus is not God and they want to try and disprove his deity and all these things. Whatever you want to say that Jesus is not, it seems to me here in Revelation that attributes fit for Jesus are being spoken of as attributes fit for the Lord God. Right, so Revelation 1, 8, Alpha and Omega. He who was and is and is to come says the Lord God. In Revelation 22, speaking clearly of Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Whatever you say he is not, you cannot deny that Revelation is saying he's the Lord God. Right, it's setting him in high regard above all things. Right? He has no competition. We cannot just say he is another man. We cannot just say he was a great prophet. We cannot simply say he was a priest. He is the Lord God, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Jesus Christ is fully God. Again, here, attributes associated with the Lord God are associated with Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus simply is. I am that I am, right? Old Testament. Yahweh, I am that I am. New Testament, Jesus, I am, right? Jesus is God. You cannot deny the deity of Christ. <clears throat> and I think about um, Jude 24, 25, which is, again, one of my favorite passages. I'm just going to all my favorite passages just so y'all can <laughs> see what I like. Jude 24, 25. <clears throat> There's another verse in here in Jude. Um, this, is, this isn't in my notes, but I just thought about it now. Um, in Jude chapter 5. I'm sorry, Jude verse 5. <laughs> it's, just, it's so easy to do that with Jude because it doesn't have chapters. <laughs> Jude verse 5. It says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What's interesting is in 1 Kings 8.53, it refers to Yahweh saving his people out of Egypt. So who saved them? Did Yahweh, the Lord God, save them? Or did Jesus, God save them? Who was it? Yes. That's who saved them. <laughs> Jesus is God. All right? All right, so in, in closing here, Jude, 4, Jude, Jude 24, 25. Now to him who is able. He's able because of his unique qualification as the mediator as fully God and fully man. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.